1: Welcome, everybody, to F1 Nation with me, Tom Clarkson, Natalie Pinkham and Damon Hill. So... Formula One is heading to Europe, we're previewing this weekend's Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix at the iconic Imola circuit as the European leg of the season begins. We're going to be joined by Italian Formula One journalist Roberto Cincaro later in the show to discuss whether Ferrari can turn things around on home territory, just 50 miles from Maranello is this racetrack. And then we'll also discuss what we can expect from Mercedes' new upgrades at this race and how the pressure is building at Alpine. But first, let's go back to Miami. And Nat and Damon, we haven't spoken to you since Verstappen's remarkable win.
2: What did you make of it? I liked it, Tom. (laughs) I just Honestly, there were some people who thought it was a bit boring, a bit dull. I mean, it got to the end. There was no incident. It was one of only or something and very few races where in the modern era where they got from the start to the finish without any red flags no yellow flags no breakdowns it was astonishing from that point of view it was old school great victory for max as well yeah old school yeah well when you say old school in the old school old days they about three cars finished i think my dad was about third in the monaco grand prix in about 1958 and there was he was last <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, Natalie, what did you make of it?
3: Yeah, certainly the case that all all the razzmatazz off track wasn't reflected on it, was it? But I think we can safely say there were some great overtakes. Uh, Max drove a brilliant race. And I think actually the one thing that really struck me was that had Max started on pole and Checo back in P9, you wouldn't have expected the same result. There was something fairly inevitable about Max winning that race. And he just, in my mind, really reasserted himself at the top of the pecking order. And it was a, a statement of intent, if nothing else, to his teammate. Don't get ideas above your station. I'm in the driving seat for this championship.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. What did you make of all the off-track razzmatazz? The pre-race stuff.
3: I don't Listen, it's coming for so much criticism, hasn't it? But I loved it. I mean, look, I just think you've got to go with it. Don't take it too seriously. Don't get too bogged down by it. I think had the race been an absolute spectacle, people would have been talking about that instead. But they were a bit distracted um, by everything that came before. But, you know, it's America. They love to sprinkle a bit of stardust on it and, um, you know, just take it for what it is, bit of fun. Yeah, I
2: thought it was what we kind of expected, you know, to to hype it up. They got the crowd all whipped up and stuff. But I do feel a little bit for the drivers who had to, you know, try and they got to get themselves ready for the Grand Prix and they're literally minutes away from getting in the car. And they've got that on top of also the grid walk and uh, all the you know, the, questions they get from
3: people like us people like <laughs> us people at
2: Sk- <laughs> on the grid uh, with martin brundle with uh, you know trying to grab a driver by that time they get they just don't want to talk anymore so it's moved it away from the actual normal course of uh, pre- preparation for a, a grand prix and now they've had to do this a uh, little bit
1: i felt the whole pre-race was a lot less manic than last year i must say last year it was a tidal wave of celebrities coming down the grid and you couldn't move, whereas there, you could move this time and it wasn't quite so intense. I know Martin Brundle had his issues trying to get hold of Roger Federer, but it really was much more like a normal grid. If you take away the actual driver presentation uh, with LL Cool J, but the actual grid itself felt more conventional.
3: Well, I mean, I think the whole event felt more organised, didn't it? I think last year you were always going to get teething problems. And, and and it looked slightly strange from home, the paddock being in the middle of the stadium. But I, I think it seemed to work quite well, didn't it?
1: It had that family atmosphere that, that you get in those situations. Whereas, of course, we're going to go to Imola this coming weekend and it's just one long, thin paddock, isn't it? So The teams feel much more segregated and separated, but yeah, it was it was a really cool event, I must say. And I thought the race was really good. I really enjoyed the race in Miami, and I thought, as Pink's has just said, Verstappen was on his A-game. And I don't think Perez was rubbish in any way. I think he was absolutely on it. As Horner said after the race, you know, the difference between them was in the first sector. Otherwise, there was nothing to separate their drivers. And, okay, there's 14 points between Perez and Verstappen in the World Championship. I think it's still anyone's. And, you know, we're going to go to Imola, an old school track.
3: Do you really, TC?
1: Yeah, I do. I absolutely I not do.
3: I feel like Perez... Okay, look, he's a great driver, no doubt. But I feel that various things have to be going his way in order for him to secure victory. I feel like Max wrestles victory from the jaws of defeat. I feel like he just is able to go that extra mile. Play this back to me at the end of the season, if I'm wrong, but i will be flabbergasted if Jeko won the championship.
1: Who do I think is the the better racing driver... I think Max Verstappen, but I think you only need to look back to 2016 to see the better racing driver in an intra-team battle doesn't always win. Uh, Of course, I'm I'm referring to Rosberg and Hamilton there.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that, but so many things have to go against you.
1: Yeah, but I thought Perez was brilliant in Baku and I feel that he had a few things going against him in that race in Miami, primarily that he started on the medium tyre. Everyone who started on the medium tyre had an issue. His teammate had an advantage starting on the hard and he capitalised on it and got second place. 14 points between them in the championship. It's bubbling away quite
2: nicely. I tend towards Natalie's point of view there, Tom, uh, on this one. But I also totally admire Max's brilliance in the car and he could see it to actually be able to see how he could place that car and how he was exploiting everything that car had uh throughout that race and 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 unfortunately the last running qualifying was a was a hiccup or well, the first running qualifying their q3 i mean um but he, so max didn't get his grip position so given an opportunity like that and sergio did not win you have to say it was a demonstration of why max is a cut above not only Sergio, but also the rest of them. But I think Sergio is keeping them honest. You know, I think there are going to be times when, and we've seen on some of these circuits, you know, in, in a straight fight, Baku and also Saudi, I think that, you know, Checo was uh, was honestly good, you know, honestly better than, than Max. And I think Max was down in Baku. I thought he was, you know, he looked a bit out of sorts. and uh, But he was back on form there in Miami.
3: Do you know, just to your point, Tom, to contradict myself slightly, if it was Charles or indeed Carlos or Lewis or George, who was just 14 points behind Max at this stage, we would be saying, it's all to play for. I think it's because it's within the same team that we just assume Max will be granted number one status and he'll run away with it. So you're right. I mean, you know, it is exciting.
1: There was speculation that Max Verstappen could win every Grand Prix this season not on Sergio Perez's watch. They told me I had the, the fastest lap and to keep the pace, so I thought... The communication was the same to to Max, so something uh, we need to review. Personally, I'm not happy because I'm not
0: here to be second. For the first
1: time in his Formula 1 career, Max Verstappen wins the Australian Grand Prix.
3: It is a team sport to one part of it, but it is actually just about Max. So, no, I'm not surprised. I thought it was dominant.
1: This will be pure racing satisfaction for Sergio Perez, who is going to beat his teammate in a straight fight. Uh, We dominated this weekend. We just have to sort out the issues. We cannot have the issues like Melbourne, and we are in the fight, guys. Vamos! Don't underestimate, Sergio. He changed a lot since he came to us.
2: You're showing him how to win. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think the most key thing is is to ensure that paranoia doesn't creep in, that both drivers are treated equally, and it's ultimately down to what they do on the On the circuit, the balls wheel to wheel and round the outside. Will it be the lead? It's close between the two of them. The crowd are roaring, and Max Verstappen takes the lead at the Miami Grand Prix, having started ninth on the grid. He's passed his teammate. He's passed all
4: of them. I call that simply lovely.
1: Oh, I liked Horner's. uh, Well, I liked a lot of those quotes there, but Horner saying. We've got to stop paranoia setting in. I think that is crucial. And, and Red Bull do have a bit of form there. Do you remember, throw it back to Weber and Vettel, not bad for a number two driver, multi-21 Seb, all those little issues that blighted that relationship between those two drivers. It's, it's He's going to have his work cut out, keeping an even keel over these two, I think.
2: I think the quote for me was Helmut Marko. He's the guy with the voice that sounds like the Terminator. He <laughs> he came in and said, you know, we turned him into a better Checo. Talking about Checo, we made him a better driver. I love the way they take all the credit, Red Bull. I think Checo's done all the hard work. My my, my hunch is that that's uh, more down to Checo than Red Bull, but I might be wrong.
3: They did the same, didn't they? They said the same about Daniel, that when he got back in the sim, he'd picked up all these terrible habits. Oh, hadn't he learned some awful stuff from McLaren, but don't worry, yeah. we'll iron it out. And, and sure enough, He's back. He's better. They
2: never turn down an opportunity to, to put the boot into other people and teams, don't they? I mean, they are like that. They are very, they are very competitive with all their statements. So, Imola, you've won there, Damon. First thing to do is to say that this is going to be the most unpronounceable Grand Prix name in history, apart from the one in 1950, which was the British Grand Prix, Royal Automobile Club Grand Prix to Europe, incorporating the British Grand Prix, which was the longest <laughs> name for a grand prix. <laughs> but um but this one is the Formula 1 Qatar Airways Grand Prix Premio del Made in Italy E <laughs> dell Emilia Romagna 2023. And so that is the re- official title of the Grand Prix we're going to I'm pretty sure it's going to be re- shortened to Imola. <laughs> <laughs> um because i was is a famous racetrack and uh it's uh one of the most the oldest and um, most raced on tracks that we've been to and, and it was obviously modified after famously after 1994 um, and then we didn't go back there well we went back there for a bit and then we didn't we, we had a bit of a break and now we've been coming back to the circuit since the covid uh, times didn't they so they they, they basically couldn't get out uh, of, of Europe so we've come back to this great place and it is steeped in culture in motor racing culture it's the circuit is named after Enzo Edino Ferrari In um, it's in it's in the heartland right up the road from Maranello and Ferrari and, and Modena and everything so what a great place I love it there the atmosphere is fantastic so it's the perfect thing to do to come back to Europe And come back to the history, the the roots of Formula One.
3: We go away to all these glitzy, glamorous places and then we come back to the heart, the real sort of heartbeat of motorsport. And there's something quite kind of gritty and authentic and wholesome. And I mean, you know, there isn't the razzmatazz. We do get a flyover, though, don't we, in a rousing rendition of the Italian national anthem, which we always love. It does genuinely feel more about the motor racing than anything else.
1: Yeah, I feel that these European races give Formula One context, all right? Context is so important in F1. To fully appreciate the sort of season Fernando Alonso is having this year, you have to see it in the context of his 21-year career in Formula One and the ups and downs. That makes you fully appreciate just how special this season is for him. And I think to fully appreciate Formula One... You have to see it in the context of those early European races that Damon was just talking about and Italy. That and, is
3: a lovely way of putting it, Tom Clarkson.
1: Well, and, and Italy and Ferrari. and So that's why I love being in Europe. And look at these three races. We've got three on the bounce. Imola, Monaco, Barcelona. Just It is the heartland, isn't it? So it's really special three weekends coming up. In terms of who is it going to suit out of Checo and Max where are we at i mean given everything you two have said already on the pod i'm guessing you're thinking it's a max verstappen uh race win coming up on sunday but is that how you feel
3: i think we've really got to consider the weather it's supposed to be incredibly mixed throughout the weekend more storms apparently so i mean that could just sort of throws in a whole other level of jeopardy doesn't it and unpredictability
1: except pinks if you've got a wet track or if you've got unpredictability, you want to be driving the best car for the team that makes the best calls on the pit wall, right? So, and that is an RB19 and Bull at the moment, isn't Do it? Do we
3: know whether it's just Saturday or is it Saturday and Sunday? Because apparently they had terrible flooding there last week.
1: So just before um, we arrived, or it was in the week between... Baku and Miami, there was incredible flooding. And um, it really hit, finally enough, Faenza, where the Alpha Tauri team is based. And so all of the families there, uh, of course, we're hoping you're all okay. Um, And has it subsided? I don't know what the latest situation is, but let's hope everyone is okay and safe. And that's, I hope we're not a washout this weekend. I mean,
3: no, I know. I mean, they're predicting a storm on Saturday for Quali, So I wonder whether... I don't want to get ahead of ourselves.
2: <laughs> really? Yes, I don't want anyone to, you know, I'll suffer because of flooding. But you know, we do need a little bit of that uh, jeopardy factor. You know, the the un, you know the the sudden little shower that um, that throws a
3: yeah, but I wouldn't mind that challenge, in the
2: race. yeah, race you, qualifying. You, um, don't mind, you know. Yeah. That's, oh, you want it all? Okay, yeah, I, all right. I, <laughs> okay. I I like it because you know if you've got a predictable format you know you've got uh, cars that can perform to their maximum and drivers who can deliver then you sort of know what, what the result's going to be so you know wet weather always throws up the the opportunities and also the peril for for drivers to have issues
1: well this is a good segue guys into talking about pirelli's extreme wet tire
2: that they're going to be bringing
1: to Imola. it is a brand new tire it's actually their 2024 tire that has been developed over the last two and a half years that doesn't require tyre warmers. Because, of course, that is the plan at the moment, is to have no tyre warmers in Formula One in 2024. And this is the first step. So
2: maybe we're going to see the extreme wet. The reason being, Tom, we should explain to listeners, is that uh, tyre warmers, obviously, they're, they're plugged in. They're using up a lot of electricity for no apparent gain you know um, the drivers will say something different because they much prefer to go up on preheated tires than stone cold tires but uh, the argument is well you're the best drivers in the world currently heat up the tires carefully and um, that's another challenge because it, it, the, the energy used in, in heating up all these tires all weekend is huge um, but um, you know so Formula 1 looking for opportunities to reduce its carbon footprint that is an objective and also it means you know with a wet tire particularly uh you know it, it means that it should light up it should start working almost immediately you don't want to um because they they lose temperature more quickly than than any tire because um they're, <laughs> they're being doused in water usually <laughs>
1: Well, you are the segue king, actually, because while we're talking about tyre warmers, it's worth us talking about the alternative tyre allocation that is also being introduced at Imola this weekend. I hope you're still with us, listeners. There's going to be two races this year where the number of tyres each driver has is reduced from 13 to 11. And Pirelli, or the regulations, stipulate that in Q1 this weekend, the drivers have to use the hard tyre. So imagine if there were no tyre warmers this weekend and the drivers were going straight out in Q1 on a hard tyre. That would that would be hard. Then, of course, Q2, you have to use the medium tyre. Q3, you have to use the soft tyre. And because of these stipulations, Pirelli are bringing their softest tyre allocation to Imola, one step softer than they did last year. Um but look out for that because that will have mm. ramifications. Um you know as we go into Q
2: one. I'm wetting my lips. I mean I think that's a <laughs> yeah. great idea. Yeah, because it means the race that it's not going to be a one stop for for the race probably. And also you're going to have in Q one you're probably going to have people doing more than one lap, so they might even just Fill them up and say, off you go and try and get the heat in the tyres.
1: Anyway, that is is going to have an impact on how things work out this weekend. So look out for that
0: Learn more at marines.com.
1: Before we go any further, I see that we are joined by Roberto Cincaro, who is a Formula One expert from Italy. Roberto, it's so lovely to have you. Ciao. How are you?
4: Ciao. <laughs> we are ready for a very tough week now. That's
1: very quickly, what is the weather doing in the Emilia-Romagna region, because of course there was all the flooding before Miami, wasn't there? How is it now? How, how are places like Faenza?
4: At the moment it's quite good. The problem is the forecast and uh, we are expecting the rain again. Of course it's not uh, very comfortable, but uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, it should be quite normal weekend. But uh, we have to be ready for the rain. Eh? We have to be ready to accept that.
3: On both Saturday and Sunday, or just quali?
4: The forecast now said both, but not heavy rain like uh, 10 days ago, fortunately. Good. Well, let's talk all things
1: Ferrari, first of all, with you, Roberto. I mean, wow, what a season they're having. What is the Italian media saying about Ferrari at the minute? <laughs> it's,
4: it's quite a complicated scenario because every year in February, there are a great expectation. And this year we're particularly optimistic, but uh, well enough the feedback coming from the Bahrain test, uh, they have revealed a problematic and troubling scenario. And uh, probably it's worse than expected, uh, much worse than expected, especially at the start of the year, the people is comparing the start of 23 with the start of 22. That is completely different. So there was, uh, especially after the first two, three races, a very strong media, because, of course, there were a new team principal. But I think Fred is the right person, but in his time. And at the same time, also, there was uh, some uh, polemic about the David Sanchez and Lorraine Becky's departure. Did not help? Not in terms of uh, work, I think, but in terms of uh, the global scenario. Looks uh, did uh, You have the feeling that everybody was leaving the Scuderia, but it's not true. I think Laurent and David had... Uh, uh, an offer that, uh, that you can simply say no and uh, the timing was not lucky for Vasseur but you cannot stop people like uh, Laurent that receive an offer as in principle so it's a quite complicated scenario at the same time there is now small optimistic about the update so there are a lot of hoping the new update well, what have they got coming to Imola? I think there is something in the new aerodynamic but the big part will be in uh, Barcelona. I think Barcelona is the key points, the turning points, and I think that it's better because in Ibola, of course, the forecast will not help. If it's raining, is not helping. If you want to judge how good is the the new update, uh, at the same time, they will, there is a different qualifying system. So I think Barcelona will be, will be the turning point.
3: You say that Fred Vasseur needs time and deserves time. How much will he be afforded?
4: When you arrive in Ferrari, you spend a lot of time uh, to understand how the team works. And probably is different than uh, comparing to the other team in the in Formula One. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated. I mean, I can imagine in Mercedes, if you want to to take a decision, you just need to talk with Toto. In Ferrari, probably the, the, the chain is more is bigger. You need to understand how it works. Of course, it was not easy for him because the first races he attempted as Ferrari team principal were not so good for the team. The result was not the result they expected. So he had pressure. There is some pressure. But at the same time, especially in Miami, speaking with Fred, he said that uh, now the atmosphere in the team is much better than in March. And uh, that surprised me a little bit, honestly. I don't know what's going to happen after Miami, because Miami was very tough weekend for the team. I was quite uh, surprised when I heard uh, Leclerc, uh, after the race, said that the car was lacking pace and consistency. He explained that in the same corner, the car had a huge oversteering balance and a huge understeering balance, that the car was windy really affected, that the car was struggling with medium tires, and then Carlos was struggling with the hard tire. So it's not easy for Fred to manage this situation. But he's the right person because he doesn't need to prove anything. It's his challenge. From this point of view, I think he's more solid person compared to others. He accepts this challenge. He's tough. But at the same time, I think that it's uh, not uh, the story of his life in this challenge with Ferrari. So I think he, he should be good in the long term.
3: So, but do you think he's been given those reassurances that he will get a long run at this? This isn't a a quick turnaround.
4: I think yes. He was chosen by John Elkan. It's a personal decision of the president, and this helped a lot in the federation.
2: <laughs> a lot, <laughs> Roberta. You um you sort of alluded to. Charles there a little bit you mentioned Charles you know we've seen in the past if a driver criticizes Ferrari like Fernando Alonso for example you know it can create tensions within the team does Charles have to be careful about do drivers have to be careful about what they say about the car I I don't think so
4: it's like what you said about Fernando but I think Charles has earned respect for many reasons of course his first year with Ferrari was very good Above all, the weekend uh, of Monza was a drinker drew for Charles and for the fans, uh, and this success gaining his popularity. Uh, and there was a funny story about about that Sunday. I remember Charles took a cab to go to the dinner after after the success in Monza. He was sitting in the back, so the cab driver uh, couldn't see him. <laughs> uh, and this man said, "Hey, have you been have you been to the Grand Prix today?" <laughs> That young boy, the Ferrari driver, looks a very special one, doesn't he? And Charles said, Yes, yes, looks good. And then just only pay the, the lady, say, I, I'm that guy. Uh, but uh, I, that's, that's it. I think that also Charles had a respect during the 2020 and 2021 seasons. At that time, when the car was um, far from being competitive, uh, he confirmed it to be a team player. And he was so obvious at that time never a word spoken out of the turn. He suffered that, uh, but he always confirmed his love for the team. Now, in 2023, of course, he starts to to, to be a little bit stronger with the team, but I think uh, it's uh, one of the pillars of, of the Ferrari for the future. Fred Marcel said that. I think uh, he has a direct link with John Elkan. The problem is not Leclerc. The problem should be if Leclerc leaves Ferrari. <laughs> that is another, is another scenario.
3: It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's clearly a difference between being assertive with the team, which I feel like Carlos is on team radio. He knows his mind. He knows the decisions he needs to make in the heat of the moment. And criticising the team publicly, I think that's kind of a no-no. We discussed it before, didn't we, about Laurent Rossi with Alpine. It it doesn't seem to get results. Why criticise anyone publicly? Do it behind closed doors.
4: I I think what Laurent Rossi did Alpine was something that uh, honestly um, is difficult to understand. Probably he had a very precise target, and uh, we tried to ask to look at the mail in Miami what we had not particularly success, tried to understand. About Ferrari, I, I think there is an open relationship between the driver and Fred. I'm sure that what the drivers tell into the media is something that the team is already discussing in the briefing, and probably they decide what to say, what not. I think in this moment, it's, uh, it's stupid if you want to to describe something that is not true, because everybody understands that the car has a lot of problem, especially in some particular layout of circuit. If you admit that the car has problem, nobody will, will kill you in terms of media, you know, because they appreciate that you are honest. And if you continue to say that everything is good, and you see that you are 30 seconds behind the the winner. So the attitude of the media is changing. It's not so probably friendly like in the first case. Honestly, I think that the driver, I appreciate how the driver spoke in Miami. It was the exact scenario we have seen on track. Uh, Of course, Charles was quite hard with the the, the post-race briefing with the media, but was very technical. So he described a very particular topic. He said the car is not consistency they still continue to struggle with the tires. I know that they did a debrief in Maranello. They understood that uh, the problem with Carlos was that he pushed too much when he exit after the pit stop because he, he was trying to complete the undercut with uh, with Alonso. So there was a technical reason for, for this problem. But uh, they were still investigating with Charles in the first stint. So they don't know what's going what's happening in Miami. That's a particularly for us, interesting, because we want to see next weekend what's going to happen. It seems to me
1: that the the Ferrari is a very good car on short radius corners. The 90 degree corner that you get in Baku. Put Charles in a Ferrari there and he's unbeatable. Two pole positions. Put some long 180 degree corners on the lap and suddenly you have much more of a problem. It's much harder to walk that tightrope of the limit. Around 180 degree corners, and that's exactly where Charles had his problems. Turn seven in Miami. Actually, I wonder whether it's something that was there in last year's car. Remember Paul Ricard when he crashed at that the the long 180 degree corner in the race? There, it, it's just it seems to me it's the long corners that are killing Ferrari, both in terms of balance and in terms of tyres. So we go to Imola, where you've got some chicanes fast chicanes, which should suit the car. I wonder whether the Rivazzas and the Tosas, and I, oh God, I love the corner names at Imola, by the way. <laughs> but it seems to me they short, shorter corners at Imola, I feel might suit the Ferrari better. I agree
4: completely with you, with your analysis. I add also one topic. In Baku, the asphalt was not particularly aggressive. Uh, in Miami, it was new, was a little bit more aggressive. So in terms of tyre management, I think uh, it's a big question mark in Imola. Because it's sub Monaco. Monaco is easy. There is no title management. So I'm expecting more in Monaco than in Monaco.
2: Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week.
3: We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me. A Survivor winner
2: listen to on fire the official survivor podcast wherever you get your podcast roberto can we just touch a little bit on this thing called ferrari you know we come to italy we come to Imola. it is all about ferrari i'm going to be doing a piece for Sky for the weekend and I'm actually going to marinello and going to Enzo's house where he you know the legend that is Enzo I mean is he revered as a kind of almost semi-religious person in Italy I mean he belongs to Italy and he means he represents Italy globally the name Ferrari is it still potent even though he's sadly he's uh, not been around for quite a time now I think that uh- it's enough the name, Enzo Ferrari in Italy,
4: as you said, is a kind of a religion, You know, of course, every time there is a new generation, you need to add something in terms of uh, success on track. Uh, you need to still, in Italia, say the mito <laughs> alive, because of course uh, it's not enough the history, but the history is very important. I think I'm surprised sometimes when I I met very young people. I mean, eighteen, twenty years old guys. Then he asked me about Enzo Ferrari. I said, I didn't, I didn't meet <laughs> Enzo Ferrari. But where did your curiosity come from? Oh, I read some book. I see the video. I've said that now there are a lot of video around, so you can, a lot of documentaries. So you see, not the say for, for example, was uh, six months ago, was there was a, a very uh, long documentary about Ferruccio uh, Lamborghini. And he was a very successful, um, in successful the, in, the, in the teenager. I didn't expect it, I was surprised. So, about Enzo Ferrari, as you said, Imola is about Ferrari. I remember was uh, some months ago there was uh, a worldwide statistic about the biggest brand in the world. No? So, there was a lot of big brand that we know, and Ferrari is still there. That helped to burn at the, the curiosity of the young people. So, oh, Ferrari is there, it's one of the top brands in the world, one of the top five. But why Ferrari? Uh, you, you, you don't see usually Ferrari uh, on the streets. It's not uh, not every day. So and the people say, oh, I see Ferrari. What is Ferrari? What is doing? And, and that helped a lot. It's still there. The Enzo Ferrari figure is still there. I'm surprised because now everything is fast. Everything is changing so fast. But uh, I can confirm that you're still there. As you said, it's a kind of religion.
3: Of course, Imola is also about Alpha AlphaTauri. Can I pick your brains about them for a moment? They're, of course, the geographically, location-wise, the closest to the track. Do you think there is anything in the rumours that Nick de Vries will be out by the summer break? And are you surprised by that? And do you think that this upgrade, this, this new floor, is going to make a difference? Because you'd have to say their season has been hugely disappointing to this stage.
4: Yeah, it's what uh, was not a very very good start from Tauria uh, That they are very confident with new floor. Uh, it's the most important part of this generation, and I think Kimola will be will be good point for them. I think they, of course, have all the possible f- feedback about the track. So it's a good place to test new parts to have the right feedback. Also, if will be wet, of course, is not uh, it's not the best, but. Probably the, the team that knows better in circuit. And um, about Nick De Vries, uh, I don't know. I, I just wrote a story last week. I said this guy was chosen after one race because of one race. It, the risk is to be fired after five races. So it's very difficult to understand uh, the politics of Helmut Marko, honestly. If you think now there are on the starting grid drivers like uh, Gasly, like Sainz, that uh, were Redwood drivers. And in the end, they were on the. They went to the market to keep Paris because they have no drivers available. I think that is very difficult uh, now, and not only Red Bull, but in general, for the rookie drivers, because you have no time for testing. You have just one and a half day before the first race uh, to understand how the car works, how the team works, not only the car, how the team works, how the your race engineer works, and. Uh, after four, five races, you are under the spotlight because you are not performing. Uh, in the past, I think Damon remember very well, especially for the Italians or the other guys, there was the season, the Binardi season, was season one, like Fernando, like Mark Weber, like season one was just for understanding with Binardi. And you, you have the possibility to do all the experience you need, far from the spotlight, was a big chance in my opinion. Now it's impossible. Now after three, four races, uh, it's do or die. I think it's a bit too much. It's a really good point. Uh, I also think
1: that four of the five races so far this year have been street tracks. And I think if you're a rookie, that is hard to get your head around because the walls are close. You make a mistake, you're in the wall. Whereas if you're on a conventional racetrack, you're in the gravel and you just make your way back to the pits, don't you? So... I feel this is a this is going to be a, a big weekend for, for Nick DeVries. He knows the track. He's got space. I thought we saw the green shoots of a recovery from him in Miami. You know, he out-qualified Yuki for the first time. Okay, he then goes and makes that frustrating mistake, crashing into the back of Lando at the start. But then after that, okay, he was out of the running, but he was consistent. I, I, I hope that Imola is the opportunity for him to just... Get his feet under the table and and start making progress. You know, it doesn't help as you say, Roberto, when Helmut Marco starts saying we've given him a yellow card. You know, how's that going to help the guy after
2: five races? It's yeah. a lot of pressure. Thanks, Helmut. You know, I mean, he ha- he's he's a tough teacher, isn't he? You know, he's a tough kind of master for drivers, and it always has been. I don't know where it comes from. I mean, he was obviously very hard on himself as a racing driver and some people believe that that is the way to get the best out of racing drivers. But I think more than often, it it just, um, I mean, Max, if you did that to Max, you know, he responded and he delivered. So there is an argument to say, well, the the tough will survive and the weak will have to be discarded. But, um, you know, the turnover at Red Bull, this is a fairly typical routine, isn't it? They take the driver through halfway through the season and then they go, right, you're out, someone else is in. And they get a chance to find out how the other driver copes. So they actually turn over quite a few drivers that way, and and get them to find out what they're really like. And and how else, you know, F two you can't really get hands. No, you can't F2.
3: recreate the pressure. So you really can need you? to put them in there. Yeah. And, and interestingly, I, I heard that Yuki was told the same at the start of the season. He was obviously nervous about coming up against Nick. It was tricky, wasn't it? Because Monza lent itself to the to the Williams. They always felt like they could score points there. Obviously, Nick comes in at the perfect time and capitalises on that. And is the talk of the town. He's being snapped up by, uh, really, it felt like he had his choice about where to go. And then suddenly reality sets in and he's got a hard task. As has Logan Sargent. I think we talked about this before, Tom, just how hard these first probably seven races are for rookies. You know, it's a baptism of fire. But that is Formula One. And it's kind of the pressure cooker that, that they've worked so hard to get into, they now have to survive in.
4: But Devon, I would have to ask Devon, but you were testing more than the actual generation uh, before, before the first race. How big is that help?
2: It helps. It helps, but there's nothing like the actual competition. I was going to bring up my first race in South Africa for Williams as, as my first drive in a Formula 1 car at the front end anyway. Yeah, hang on, hang on. You're rewriting history now. That wasn't your Am first I? race. It wasn't the first. I was Sorry, Tom. It was the second race. Where, where was it then? I Where's love the this. One?
3: Do you know, Roberto, Tom regularly corrects Damon on his career. <laughs> you know that. Uh,
2: <laughs> I, hang on, can I just... Disc- I was I in South Africa? I can't remember.
1: No, but my point is, Brabham. You're that's where you learnt the ropes. Was with
2: Brabham, and then uh, yeah, I'm saying I'm saying the first race as a front running. Yeah, it's okay. That being at the back is nobody cares. You know, you can do what you like. Well, tell Nick Devries that. <laughs> well, that this is I think Roberto's point is now that the scrutiny is intense, much more intense perhaps than it ever was. As you said, Minardi. People could drive for Minardi and people go, oh yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, where did they finish? Usual place. We don't care. Now it's intense scrutiny. Everyone's following on Instagram or on, you know, social media or whatever it is, Netflix. And on Sky, of course. And and you know, they are we are going through everyone's career with forensic detail. And you know it's it's much harder, I think, from that point of view for drivers. Yeah, I mean, once you get to the sharp end, things happen to your head that didn't happen before because it's a whole new world of being in the spotlight, in the in the red heat of the scrutiny of the media.
1: Now, Roberto, you mentioned Alpine a little bit earlier when you talked about Laurent Rossi's comments, and of course, you were referring to a television interview that he gave. Uh, to Canel Plus in France and then he followed that up with a a written piece that he gave to the Formula 1 website. I mean let's be honest. He burnt the house down, didn't he? He he'd said he, he said the team are a, a bunch of dilettantes and amateurish and all these different descriptions and no one in that team appreciated it and none more so than team principal at now. I find it very difficult.
3: I mean, look, I know it's been a very disappointing season, but you don't vent publicly. It's the worst thing to do. It's like admonishing your kids in front of other people. You just embarrass them. It doesn't have the impact you want. It doesn't serve anyone's purpose.
1: But Pinkel, Laurel Rossi is not a stupid man. There's obviously an ulterior motive here. And what is it? What do we as F1 Nation think it is? Roberto,
4: I'm sure Lohar Rossi is not a stupid man, as you said, but at the same time, I think that he has not a uh, big know-how in motorsport. So we have to, I think, to consider the effect of this kind of uh, speech when you are managing a Formula One team. Because now, sometimes you say, oh, Formula One team is the same company that can uh, produce milk or selling book. or I think it's not the same. It's, it's different. It's more... It was a very stressful context. Honestly, I th- I, I hope that he had the target with that speech. I don't know if the team principal or if the, the team manager of someone, because he didn't specify anything. If you say we are amatorial, so what does it mean? What do you mean? Because the car was fast on some track, was not fast. We, we are still trying to understand what this car can achieve, because sometimes it is in the top 10. Sometimes it's far, it's, it's difficult. But if you speak in that way, I'm, I don't understand. Probably it's something from uh, big from Harvard. I don't know what they study this kind of comment, but uh, honestly, I don't understand.
1: Well, the man under pressure is Otmar Safnauer. And interestingly, guys, uh, when Pedro de la Rosa and myself were recording this show last week in the Miami paddock, at one point we were outside the Ferrari hospitality area. And Otmar Safnauer went in and out of the Ferrari hospitality area several times. And I'm trying to work out what that was all about. (laughs) And it, you know, it did make me wonder, Mattia Benotto, what is he doing now, Roberto? And is he... The ultimate objective of Alpine now to go and run that team instead of Otmar. It made me wonder. I hope it's not the case. I rate Otmar. I think he has a very laid back management style, which probably if you're not meeting your objectives might come across as a bit frustrating if you are a Luca Di Maio level or Laurent Rossi level. But I did wonder whether Otmar was somehow in Ferrari trying to find out what the situation is with Benotto just to see what else might be out there for
4: the team. Makia is in gardening and is respecting perfectly because he's not speaking at all. Uh, we don't know anything about uh, his recent activity, so we don't know. But I think that if Otmar is in trouble, it's not just because of the car of 2023, because it's not very competitive. I think the big mistake was last year with Piastri and uh, and Alonso and uh, all the, the management uh, that was honestly quite embarrassing for, for, for the team because they lose, they has lost a guy like Piastri just because they forgot his uh, contract with the deadline. So it's something that honestly is difficult to explain if you talk about the Formula One team management. And at the same time, probably, yes, not a very good feeling with the CEO. And uh, you can add also the car that is not performing as they expected. And uh, the context is not, is not uh, good for, for Otmar. But who can replace him just in case he left the team? There are not, not a lot of people with uh, experience uh, in team principal role. But at the same time, I have a question thinking about being east Should he want to continue as team principal or he prefer to come back to the technical director role? Because in the end, I'm not sure that you uh, want to
2: continue 100% as team principal. Roberto, you just you said something I've been, I was saying at the time, which is I thought they should have, He wasn't the right role for him. You know, he's technical and he does. I think he's very important to the team. I think he's got enormous talent. And yeah, I'd bring him back in and say, okay, you, you can run all the, the technical side of things. And uh, obviously a very bright guy. Anyway, I don't know if that's possible politically.
1: Damon you you make the point that he's technical and he's not the right guy for the role but there has been a tendency recently in Formula One to promote engineering technical people into that role of team principal and think of Mike Crack at Aston Martin Uh, think of James Valves now team principal of Williams Andrea Stella at McLaren.
2: Yeah okay so I think it's a question of skill set then as well but um, you know if you want to do the job deliver yourself and the best of yourself to the engineering side of it and also go to all the team principal meetings and argue the toss with Christian Horner over small issues to do with strategies and stuff like that. You know, there is another role. There's another aspect to being a team principal, which I think uh, uh, some people are are good at. I mean, a lot of it is about arguing over money. A lot of it is arguing over, you know, time spent doing this or the other or the strategy of marketing F1. It might not be his prime focus. You know, it might not be something that you you love and your passion. But um, I was surprised that they couldn't fit the two in because I think Fred Vasseur is that sort of guy. He understands racing. Tom, in the past, you had the team principal was the man that was
4: deciding everything in the team, including, for example, the drivers line up. Now, if you see, it's true what you said, there are engineers in the team principal role, but you had another figure on. Andrea Stella is the team principal, but there is Zach Brown. In every team now, there is a CEO up the team principal. And he is the man that is deciding the driver lineup and stuff like that. So it's true that there is a new generation of team principal, but they have not the same power that people like Ron Dennis had in the past. Really interesting point,
1: Roberto. But actually, the teams where... One person is the CEO and the team principal, other ones getting the job done. Christian Horner is team principal and CEO of Red Bull Racing. He is the de facto boss. Toto Wolff is the same at Mercedes, isn't he? Whereas, let's go back to Alpine, Otmar is the team principal and Laura Rossi is the CEO. And I question whether the splitting of those roles works in a Formula One team, or whether you actually need to have that one central pillar, as in a Christian Horner type, making all all of the decisions.
3: I think you need a pecking order, don't you? I think people need to know, ultimately, where the buck stops. All very well having a division of labour and splitting tasks, but somebody needs to be held to account. And also, you you, you get a scenario of, of too many cooks spoiling the broth. There's a clash of egos I'm sorry to say, but there really is.
1: But so, Pinks, do you think at Pinkham Grand Prix, you would have one team principal and CEO, or would you split the roles?
3: Yeah, no, that would be me. And I would be the uh, number one driver. In fact, you know what I would do at Pinkham Racing? I would just employ Fernando Alonso to do all yeah. of the above, because I feel like he does that anyway.
1: <laughs> On the subject of Fernando Alonso, and... Um, And Aston Martin, you know, another podium last time out. You know, I still think back to that wonderful victory he had at Imola in 2005 when he beat Michael Schumacher uh, by, by milliseconds in the end. The last lap of
0: the San Marino Grand Prix. Michael Schumacher has one more lap, just three miles, in which to find a passing place on Fernando Alonso. It's been an absolutely thrilling conclusion to this 25th San Marino Grand Prix. Schumacher undoubtedly has the faster car, but Alonso's reacted well. Schumacher has a look at him into Tosa. This is the last time they'll go through this corner. Amazing defensive driving by Fernando Alonso. His hand is out of the cockpit. Across the line they go. One of the closest finishes I can remember
1: for many, many years. What do we think of Aston's chances this weekend?
3: I love an anniversary in this sport and we're exactly 10 years since Fernando's last win in Formula One. That has gone so quickly, hasn't it? Um, incidentally, we are also uh, on this day in 2016. What happened, Roberto, TC, Damon?
1: It rained. Uh, 20, uh... Ah, ah. Me, me please, my hands up. I think that's when they crashed at Barcelona. Wasn't no,
3: it? It? it is when Max Verstappen became the youngest ever race winner in Formula One, winning on his debut.
1: Ah, oh, okay. no, same race, Diego. same race.
3: I bet you are such a teacher's pet on ETC, sticking it. I know the answer, miss. I knew the answer.
1: Was that really? That was today, was it? That was the 15th. Can you
3: believe it? God. Can you believe that? Seven years ago. Anyway, uh, back to Fernando. Aston Martin's chances. What do you think, Roberto?
4: I think he's very, very hungry. That was surprised me a lot, is how hungry he is. He's 41, 42. I, now I don't remember. Nearly 42. 42. And uh, I think he's more hungry than... Uh, Tsunoda, probably, or other guys. <laughs> he is pushing. I Sometimes uh, I have the opportunity to speak with people of Aston Martin, the engineer, and say, it's uh, something that you cannot explain. It's like a rookie, like a guy that uh, probably 10 years waiting for the last uh, success in Formula 1. Everybody wants to see Fernando at the top of the podium because at the moment he's the green Pixel in the Red Bull podium until now, no? Every podium, there is Fernando Costa to the Red Bull guys. I think he should fix this target this year. I'm expecting. But not that far, eh? probably Monaco. Monaco is a good chance for him.
1: Well, it, it's, it's good. It's got good mechanical grip, good through the slow corners. It's a bit draggy on the straights. There are no straights in Monaco, are they? So...
2: It's perfect. It's perfect for him. He just knows where he is in a race. He knows what to do in a race. He's just aware of everything and he pushes the whole time. I've never seen him really kind of like tug along and just settle for where he is in a race. He's always looking for something. And yeah, out of the car, he's very entertaining and smart and and, um, maybe not everyone's cup of tea, but I think he's
3: great. I don't know. I think he's more popular than ever. I think he's he's so canny at the moment as well. That whole Taylor Swift thing. I mean, that talk about pulling in a younger generation of fans. He's suddenly exploded in popularity as well.
1: Right. Pinks, explain what you mean by that. You're bursting the bubble, aren't you? You're going to say it was never on. It was never
3: on. No, no, no. I would <laughs> never, ever, ever get back together. Listen, I know all the songs because I've got a six-year-old girl. <laughs> the point is any kind of association with Taylor Swift is enough to pique the interest of a younger generation of fan. And it did exactly that. And he gave a wry smile and he was incredibly charming and battered it off beautifully. But then he was trending everywhere with Taylor and the memes were bursting out of our ears. My six-year-old and my eight-year-old vaguely know who Fernando Alonso is because it's some bloke who mummy interviews at the track. The minute they heard he was associated with Taylor Swift, they asked me who he was in the race in Miami. (laughs) His growth on social media, online, his presence has been exponential. And he has been driving well. He is on the podium, but people are intrigued by Fernando Alonso. I think it's the best he's ever driven. I know that's a bold statement, but I also think it's the best he's ever been. I find him utterly charming and engaging in the pen. He's making time for people. He understands from his two years out how tough it is to be the middle person as well, i.e. us. So he makes more time for us. He understands that, that we offer him a platform to talk directly to his fans. He used to hate all the media stuff, you know, respects appreciates it understands we're a necessary evil in the whole scheme of things and i feel like he's just more relaxed and as a result he's he's just great value
1: every word he utters is worth listening to isn't it every sentence. i when i'm doing the press conferences and i see who the top three is i go yes we've got fernando in there because he's at least gonna have he'll say something that is interesting and that people can quote and and I agree with you about the whole package. I think this is the best overall package of Fernando we've ever had. I'm not going to say he's driving better now than he was 10 years ago. Um, I'm not convinced by that. I, I think he's driving him brilliantly and he's got those three tenths over Lance Stroll pretty much every race, hasn't he?
3: I'd love to put him in a Red Bull. Put it this way. I would love to see how he'd get on in a Red Bull right now.
2: Roberto, uh, have you had any comments on this at all? <laughs> <laughs> I can... <laughs> I can I
4: can add just one small <laughs> thing that impressed me a lot in Miami. He was driving the race, so he, I think he was uh, focused on driving. He opened the radio and it said, "Hey, very good overtaking movement lines, great job." And that was how a driver can watch the screen, and of course, is part of the uh, the mission he has because in the past. He was judged that as not a good team player, Fernando, and he was not. Probably now he's pushing very hard in this direction, just to to show the people that he's a very good team player. But he, that surprised me a lot in my head, be honest. <laughs> this
1: year is so good for Fernando Alonso's legacy, isn't it? We're going to come away from 2023 thinking he's a great team player, brilliant for a quote. It's been a very good year.
2: He's the prodigal son, isn't he? Yes, I mean, he 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 basically overplayed his hand when he was at McLaren and then he did some, something similar I think probably at Ferrari and then he basically uh, insulted Honda because uh, he called it a GP2 engine and he he lost a lot of friends and I think he's had a uh, an epiphany a bit of a turnaround and I think he's a prodigal son he's come back and gone listen okay I get it now I've upset people it's not hurt. it's hurt my career I've missed opportunities I've only got two world championships when so I should have four or five you know, so, yeah, he's he's on his best behaviour. Or maybe he's a changed man. I like to and think... And he's
3: won back our hearts and minds in the process.
2: Yeah, and I like to think it's the latter. I think that he's changed and he's matured and he's become a, a massive asset to the sport.
1: Now, we haven't talked about Mercedes yet. And um, Toto Wolff has talked about uh, the upgrades that the team is bringing uh, to Imola. The, the side pods are going to look very different. There's new front suspension. Toto Wolff's calling it the new baseline. I mean... What are we expecting, Damon? Do we think, you know, Mercedes are going to make a, a massive leap forward? I mean, Miami last weekend
2: they finished 4th and 6th. Are they suddenly going to be on the podium? I think you spoke to George. He was after the race in Miami didn't he was downplaying. He said, "Listen, don't expect too much." And then you have Toto saying we got you know this big package coming, and of course we're expecting a lot. We're expecting a huge amount, and especially if they talk about the side pod, because that was been that's been the big bone of contention over the last two years. Is why do their side pods look so different to everyone else? And then you have the people in Mercedes saying, "Well, it's actually that's a small part of the aero package, and you're making too much of it." But there's got to be something in it. We're very excited to uh, to see what they're going to bring in terms of that at Imola. So intriguing. To predict or to guess what we're going to see on, on the Mercedes. Everyone's going to be watching very closely. What a discussion. It's been
1: fantastic, Roberto, to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, before we all go, some Imola predictions. What do we all think? Come on, let's come up with our podium. Perhaps, Roberto, let's start with
4: you. Uh, it's, it's not easy to say <laughs> something different than Verstappen P1 in Imola. I think that we'd be not 1-2 uh, Red Bull. I'm expecting Max. I'm expecting Fernando and one Ferrari on the podium.
3: Be good to get a Ferrari on the podium, wouldn't it? So I'm going to go for, I may be unrealistic because I know they've been playing down expectations, but I'm hoping that the Mercedes upgrades have an impact. So it'd be good to see a Mercedes up there. I'm going to go for one Red Bull, one Ferrari and one Mercedes. I'm not going to tell you who because that's too hard.
2: (laughs) (laughs) My prediction for Imola is uh, I'm not going to say Max Verstappen, Sergio Perez, and uh, Fernando Alonso because that would be boring. I do think the Mercedes could be in there a little bit, and um, Ferrari could throw a surprise as well. Because as we were talking about before, not one, not a lot of one hundred and eighty degree corners. You know, you have got to get into a corner good, get out of a corner good, and um, so let's say Charles Leclerc is going to is going to be in the mix as well. So max charles sergio
1: i'm gonna go max charles george russell he was very strong in imola last year and um, i think those mercedes upgrades are gonna certainly have an impact roberto thank you very very much for your time it's been absolutely fabulous to have you on the show Ciao, grazie. see you in imola great job thank you so much thank you guy Let's check in with our F1 fantasy team, F1 Nation Racing. Our two constructors for Miami were Red Bull and Aston Martin, and our drivers were Verstappen and Alonso, then Russell, Piastri and Sunoda, And we earned our highest points total of the season so far with 341. Thanks to Verstappen's overtaking, another Red Bull 1-2 and another Alonso podium. We'll make some changes to our team in a moment, but first, let's see who's top of our league, the F1 Nation World Championship. Fergu's Flyers are top with 1,751 points. They had Verstappen, Perez and Alonso. Next up, Lotus Begin gentlemen, who are 20 points behind in second. They used the Limitless chip so were able to change as many drivers as they wanted with no cost restrictions. And in P3, also using the Limitless chip in Miami, it's Thunder Table on 1,724. So well done to you three teams. And what about our team, F1 Nation Racing? We're currently 426th out of more than 1,000 teams in the league. So let's make a change to try and climb up the standings. We're going to stick with Verstappen, Alonso and Russell, all in the top four in Miami, so it would be harsh to take them out. As McLaren's struggles continue, we're going to replace Oscar Piastri with Kevin Magnussen. And although he just missed out on a point last time out, He drove really well, so let's keep the faith in Yuki Tsunoda. And remember, you have until the start of qualifying on Saturday to make changes to your team. And you can join our league at any time to compete against us and other listeners. Search for the F1 Nation World Championship. And if you're not playing yet, it's not too late to join. And it's totally free. Just search online for F1 Fantasy to sign up. Then choose your constructors and drivers using a $100 million budget. Don't forget that this week's F1 Beyond the Grid is with the American former Toro Rosso driver, Scott Speed. I had a really good chat with him. That's available from Wednesday. And the latest episode of our Formula Y podcast is out now. Asking why F1 drivers need to be so fit. Just search for Formula Y on your podcast app. Well, that's it from us. We'll be back with F1 Nation next Monday with our Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix review. But for now, thank you very much for
3: listening.
2: Thank you to Roberto. Goodbye from me, Damon Hill.
3: It's been great to chat to you all. See you all in Imola. I'm packing the waterproofs.
2: F1 Nation is produced by Formula 1 and Audio Boom Studios.